Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Christopher Webster. Christopher is the head writer and co-founder of StoryFix Media, a contributor for Screen Anarchy, Bloody Disgusting, and Quiet Earth, the author of the book New Horizons, and a writer of the TV series Dark Web. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Do you want to tell us where you are in the world right now? Sure. I'm up in Canada, actually, uh, by the Rocky Mountains. It's really beautiful up here, and uh, we're most, you know, we're sort of, our, our claim to fame is having uh, Hollywood productions come up and produce a lot of Westerns up here where I am. And so AMC produced uh, Hell on Wheels close to where I am, and um, Brad Pitt did uh, uh, the, um, what's the name of that that Western he did? Um, oh, um, shit. I, I'm trying to think of what it is. It the was Assassination. It, it, yeah, of Jesse James. By, yeah. By the coward Robert Ford, I believe. That's it. Yeah. That's it. What a mouthful. Quite a title. So. Would you say that Canada is the new Italy for as far as like, um, you know, they call them spaghetti westerns. They have a name for Canadian westerns? <laughs> Poutine westerns? I'm not sure. <laughs> I like that. Um, I haven't, you know what, that's actually a really good point. Um, I've, no one's really sort of brought that up to me before and, and I've never had any conversations, but I think Canada does need uh, a name for the kind of westerns we produce. Although they are American productions right. um, and uh, they're, not, um, they're not generally... Canadian produced in the same way that uh, that the Italian westerns were. The Italian westerns they they produced them in Italy and tried to make them seem like they were American. And and in Canada, America comes and just uses our our, <laughs> our tax cuts. Cool. So let's talk. Um, you know, writing. So we've interviewed sure. entertainment contributors, novelists, screenwriters, and you're all of the above. Um, would you want to just kick off the episode by explaining to us kind of what you know? I, I mentioned your bio and what you do. Kind of what the difference between those writing styles are and, and, and what you do and, and how they differ. Hmm, that's a really good question. Yeah, the writing styles um, obviously differ quite a bit from uh, sort of the more journalistic writing style is different than prose. Um, and actually, it took me uh, quite a bit of time to get out of um, the, the headspace of a journalistic writer. Um, and when I started getting into prose about 10 years ago, um, because I unlike a lot of writers, I didn't take creative writing in school. I actually took, um, I took English. So I have a bachelor's in English with a minor in film, um, film studies, uh, because I always thought that I would be a writer, but I always thought that I would write about film because I've always been really passionate about, about movies. And I, well, I'll just tell you the story quickly about how I got into, um, writing about, about film. Sure. Um, when I was in my early twenties, I was still in university uh, I wasn't really sure how to get into writing about movies. It's not like there's a lot of movie writing jobs um, for for the local paper. A lot of that stuff is actually they they um, like in your local town. Maybe you have a film writer, but chances are they're bringing in um, the writings of someone in you know L.A. or they're you know in, in my case in Vancouver or something, and they're just publishing it in your local paper. So there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity, but there was uh, a couple weeklies. Uh, here in the city, and you know, I wouldn't recommend anybody do this, but I remember one day I was walking by the weekly, and I decided that I would just walk into the office, and I just walked into the office and asked to speak to the editor, who happened to be in at the time, and he was sort of looking confused, asking why I had 
asked for him. And I just told him, like, I noticed your paper doesn't have a film column. I'd like to write it. And he was uh, perplexed by that. And he sat me down and we eventually hashed out a column. So I started writing a column for this weekly paper. From there, started doing some film reviews, but I was still in university. Um, and the pay was terrible. I mean, it was like, I don't even remember what it was, like five cents a word or something. It, it, it really wasn't great. And so I decided to um, switch gears a little bit. And I went into, again, instead of creative writing, I decided to go into uh, marketing. So um, it's still creative writing, but it's like business writing. So it's like, it, it was more like writing courses for marketing. Um, and then from there, uh, about 10 years ago, from this writing course I was taking in a marketing class, um, I decided to try to write my first screenplay. And uh, because I was, I, was being very, I was very inspired by the writing course, even though it wasn't directly related to creative writing. And uh, so from there, I started getting into creative writing. But it, it did take a while for me to get out of the headspace of the marketing and the, and the journalistic writing into figuring out my voice for prose and for screenplays and for games and everything else I've been doing. What was um, that uh, screenplay called? The first screenplay I ever wrote was called Bad Camp, and, uh, which is a terrible title. <laughs> um, and that screenplay actually became the novel. That that uh, that I published with Storyfix Media this year called New Horizons, wow. um, and uh, that book is about. So my first screenplay it was about. Um, I like to describe it as Lord of the Flies meets David Fincher's The Game. So it was like uh, a group of teens who uh, so there's this uh, mysterious brat camp situation where all these delinquent teens are sent to, but there's no adults there, and they're sort of left to fend for themselves, but they're you know, manipulated at, at every turn by the, by these unseen forces. And, uh, so I decided to, you know, when that screenplay didn't, didn't quite pan out, it, it wasn't produced. Although I worked briefly with the producer and, um, the director of the mutant Chronicles, Simon Hunter, he's a British director. So I worked with him briefly, uh, I would say for about a year developing the script. And then when he moved on to something else, um, as directors often do, uh, a couple years later, I decided to novelize the screenplay because it's one of those ideas I just couldn't get out of my head. Right. And so finally, we were able to, to uh, publish the book this year. Um, for anyone interested in writing novels, you always end up kind of with a first or second draft that you're not sure if it's working, but you sort of suspect it might be. Um, I'll just say this. Some people might be interested in this. There's a, uh, a social storytelling website called Wattpad, and I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's actually a Canadian site, and it's um, trafficked mostly by teens. So um, there's a lot of sort of teen novels on there, but it's a huge, huge, huge community. There's like 40 to 50 million page views a month or something. I mean, it's just massive. And an early draft of the novel, uh, which is now New Horizons, uh, was read nearly a million times. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. So it was sort of a good beta test for us you know, when we were publishing the book. So this, this, this project has had a long history. Let's put it that way. Right. And I give you credit because I, I know that it's very easy for writers to work on something and very quickly f fall out of love with it and move on to a new story, right? It's so easy to do that. But you've been kind of, you know, rocking with it this whole time. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I have so many failures under my belt. I wouldn't want to novelize them all. But um, uh, every once in a while, you work on a project that you just can't let go. And, uh, you know, these, these pop up in very high profile ways all the time. I mean, recently 
Duncan Jones uh, produced Mute, and Netflix finally put it out for him. And for years, you know, uh, writing for Quiet Earth and Screen Anarchy, I mean, we've been covering Mute. He's been talking about Mute since when Moon came out. And, uh, you know, we, it, it was his, his labor of love, his passion project. He couldn't let it go. And then he, you know, finally was able to produce it to mixed results. So, yeah, I mean, everyone seems to have one, you know, in their back pocket for sure. Cool. So just um, dialing it back a little bit, back to the screenplay. Um, you know, you had you were working on the screenplay. You said you were working with a director. What was your goal for that script? Were you like, I'm going to package it with this director and we're going to go pitch this to Hollywood and find an agent? Or what, what was your like end goal prior to kind of uh, moving it along to like a, a novel? Well, I'll talk about, I mean, I was naive enough when I started passing the screenplay around and, it, and some uh, producers seemed to like it. And Simon Hunter came on board pretty quickly. I was naive enough to think that they were going to make it. Um, and th- certainly when you work with producers, not all producers, but, but, but many that I've worked with, I mean, it is just the way they talk, they make it seem like it's happening next month. Like, oh yeah, this is great. One more draft. I'm going to package it up. We're right. going to get a star. It's going to be huge. We're, you know, I, uh, I know a German investor, um, you know, in the whole deal. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it, it was an amazing experience developing for about a year and a half with, um, a couple of producers and a director, but I definitely learned a lot about, um, how uh, hard it is to get these things going. And, um, you know, this was sort of a YA property before um, YA had really hit big. So this is going back to about 2009. Um, and uh, the Hunger Games had been published the year before, I want to say, maybe two years before. But when I was speaking to the producers, I, they were saying, oh, so is this, this is like Twilight. This is, this is going to be like right. the next Twilight. And I was thinking, no, this is kind <laughs> of more like the Hunger Games. You know, it's a bit darker. It's, it's, um, you know, it's unflinching. I mean, it's definitely like it's about teens, and I think teens would dig it, but it's not like Twilight. And they were, ne- they had never heard of the Hunger Games. I mean, this is how early this was. So, so I was either, you know, maybe I was ahead of things. I don't know. But then when the Hunger Games, uh, they had learned about it, and they, they learned about how big it was, they said, oh, well, now it's too late. We can't make the movie because there's already a thing like it. I thought, what? So you've got to find the pocket, it seems like, with these projects. and. Uh, you know, um, I have since worked on um, some screenplays that uh, had a lot of heat behind them, and some some larger studios uh, have looked at them and, and expressed interest. But again, it's it's I think in a way I'm tra- starting to transition away from from screenwriting and more to although I'm working on two projects right now, but away from screenwriting and more into novels and mobile games, just because they're easier to get onto the market, and it's so much work and. The, and then so heartbreaking when, you know, everybody just kind of walks away after a few years. You know, you, you, you can only do that so many times, I think, before you start to lose your mind. Wow. And what was your inspiration for writing this? Because obviously, like I said, you've been working on it for a while. It's been adapted to the novel. Obviously, Hunger Games, which you referenced, I believe is inspired or started with Battle Royale. Well, I knew about Battle Royale uh, long before the Hunger Games. Right. Um, I was a huge fan of that film. Um, cause I was all, I had always been into cult movies. So, so I remember when battle Royale was, uh, basically banned here, you couldn't get it. No distributor would pick it up. Um, and if you were lucky enough, you could see it at an art house screening on Halloween or something, which is what I did when that movie came out. So I was a huge fan, but, but going back, it went a lot further back to when I was, uh, more of a young adult myself. And, and I was a big fan of Lord of the Flies. 
you know, we had to read that in school and it just always stuck with me. And so I liked that survival, um, you know, story, uh, situation. But then of course, uh, lost came out and lost was a huge influence on me actually getting off my butt and writing. Um, because even though it's super controversial, uh, <laughs> I'm a big Damon Lindelof fan. I know that his, his name, uh, you know, can spark fear in the hearts of fanboys everywhere because, you know, a lot of people weren't happy with the way lost ended or, uh, you know, some people didn't like Prometheus, but, um, the way lost, uh, changed the landscape for, for TV and the way that it used mystery was just uh, so inspiring for me that it got the wheels turning in my head and it and sort of it was Lord of the Flies meets this kind of um, lost mystery storytelling. I thought, well, I've got a great idea, so I, you know, I kind of went went from there. Um, but I would say, yeah, Lord of the Flies and uh, Catcher in the Rye, the Holden Caulfield character, really being inside of a kid's head who's got a lot on his mind and and you know, sort of a troubled character. That was that was important to me as well. And you had mentioned uh, Lost and Mystery. I, I really think that's like the key, right? Mystery is that's the best way I would use to describe Lost. And I'm assuming uh, with your novel as well, how do you write mystery? Like, what's the what's the secret to it? How do you create those moments that keep people coming back for, or, or in the case of a novel, I guess, turning the page? Well, I mean, when you look at Lost, um, even if the episode you happen to be watching seems slow, you knew that at the end of that chapter, let's call it, that there was going to be a big kapow that was going to happen. And, and inevitably, every episode had something happen that would make you want to tune in for next week. And, and uh, you know, I made sure, like for the Mysteries of New Horizons, I made sure to sit down and parse all the information that I would share um, in such a way that people would get to the end of a chapter and, and need to turn the page. Um, and I remember listening to a podcast with Joe Hill, uh, Stephen King's son. And, you know, he basically said, said it that like, you know, if you're going to be a novelist, like you need to be, um, aware that you are competing with YouTube and, you know, um, Netflix and, and all the entertainment that anyone could ever want. So you have to write readable books, books that people want to turn the page. You need to like every page needs to be interesting enough that someone wants to turn it. Otherwise they're just going to go watch whatever. You know, they're, or they're going to read a comic, or they're going to do something else. You know, novels have a have a uh, a hard road in this uh, new media age, right? So, you know, I took that to heart for sure. And so, writing mystery, I mean, it really is doling out information in such a way that people feel satisfied that they're getting uh, the information that they that they want and, and the reveals that 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 are intriguing and satisfying. But that, and certainly this this is the how they managed it and lost was every time they answered a question, it, it asked two more questions. And so the mysteries compounded until you, they sort of snowballed until the very end. And, uh, so I, you know, that's really the strategy, I think. And when you went from the screenplay version of the story to the novelization, um, of, or novel that you created from that story, how did you dive into writing a novel? Like, obviously I know you had been working on a screenplay, so you knew that format. Were you familiar with how to write a novel or, or did you just kind of dive in and say, okay, well, I'm going to figure this out. And, and in that case, like, how do you choose, you know, narrator or no narrator? Well, there are a few false starts because um, screenplays have a very specific right. uh, writing style that you have to follow. They're, they're present tense, right? And so when I wrote the, that's why the, the novel is also present tense and it's first person. So it's very immediate. 
Um, you're with the character all the time. It, 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 it almost um, reads like a movie in that way. So yes, there was, I mean, I, I very consciously adopted a style that would feel quick and cinematic and, and, and really lean. And so, you know, obviously the book is much more fleshed out, like a, a screenplay is, you know, it was like a hundred pages and the novels like 300 pages. But yeah, I did choose like the first person present narrative or sorry, uh, style to, to, to sort of keep it fast paced. Um, and I think it really helps. Like it definitely, like if you want a page turner, I would go with present tense, um, first person as well, if you can, can help it, but there's huge limitations to that as well. Right. And you made a great point earlier. You were, um, referencing, you know, thinking of a novel in the age of today's, you know, short attention span. I hadn't thought of that. Do you think that novels that overall have, are writers writing shorter, uh, novels? What are some ways to combat, you know, competing with, with that? Would you break a novel into many pieces? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, that's sort of a question for the book industry, I think overall, but, <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't know if it's obvious to me that books have changed much, much in, uh, certainly the length of books hasn't seemed to change. Um, you know, a novel is, uh, still considered a novel at what, 80 to hundred thousand words or more. I mean, if you write 50,000 words, no one's going to call that a novel in the in the, in the literary writing world, um, everyone's very snobby about that kind of thing. That would be like a novella. But I mean, think about how popular um, the Game of Thrones books are. Or, I mean, it seems like people do tend to, you know, write big books. Stephen King's books haven't gotten any smaller, certainly. I mean, they, they've probably gotten bigger over the years. So I don't know. I mean, I would be curious to see uh, the sales figures and see if... Um, what I'm saying is correct, or what Joe Hill said was correct. Like, are people buying less books? I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm not as tapped in on the business side, I think. I will say, though, that people who do pick up the New Horizons book tend to read it very quickly and have told me that they liked it, so they must be finishing it. You know what I mean? So I think, look, maybe we shouldn't take Joe Hill's uh, uh, words at face value. Maybe people still love books and they like to get into a good long book. But it does seem to me that you do need to be wary of all the competition out there for sure. Definitely. It's a different type of, it's more classic way of binging. Uh, <laughs> people like when uh, all the TV episodes uh, come out all at once, but take a novel, you can just dive into that one sitting. People do binge novels though. I mean, yeah. I was talking to a family member and they were really into the series, uh, that series of books that was out. It might've been Twilight actually. It was a few years ago. And she was saying she, the new book came out and she raced to the, chapters and bought it or chapters is a canadian bookstore i don't know if they have that in, in it's like a barnes and noble let's say i read the whole, a whole book in the parking lot or something i mean she just couldn't wait and so you know yeah people maybe it's just about binging if you know people don't care what they're binging they just like to binge <laughs> but uh, so people do yeah i mean man people get into to novels too there's there's uh there's very passionate readers out there for sure which is definitely refreshing to hear, especially in the age of very, very, very micro content. Um, as far as your novel, I have to ask, how did you get your novel published? Is it self-published? Do you have a publisher? Like, Tell us about that process. Well, I uh, had talked to a couple agents about it They were, um, and was thinking about getting it wrapped. Um, and, but there's, I decided instead to um, publish it under our a new company that I started uh, with my with 
a couple family members because uh, we're all um, passionate about new media and stuff. So we have a new company called Storyfix Media. And primarily, it was started to publish uh, mobile games, uh, particularly interactive fiction games. But we're also going to publish novels. And then if we can scale up, then we can, um, we can do the new media thing where like, we publish a novel and then maybe we have a tie-in um, a side story to the novel and try to, try to leverage the different uh, markets um, around some of our stories. Um, and so we publish it through Storyfix Media. Um, and, uh, so you can get it in paperback or you can get it, uh, for like mobile devices or Kindles or whatever. So, I mean, I guess like technically it's a self-published work, although it, it, it's done under my company with grand ambitions and it's, it's, it's the first part of a trilogy. So the second book, uh, comes out next year. Awesome. And, uh, before we dive into Storyfix, cause I definitely want to hear about Storyfix. I want to hear about what you're working on at Storyfix. A question that I've thought about because I, I believe we, when we met, you know, I had known that you were writing for Screen Anarchy, Bloody Disgusting, and Quiet Earth. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about are those your day job? Are those like where do you draw the line as far as as a writer, what your work is, what your passion is? Are the, is it all of those things? And and are you still working for those companies? Like, give us an update on on where those tie in. Uh, yeah, I'm still a contributor to all three of those uh, of those sites, uh, and very happy to be. Um, I started writing about movies online uh, just over ten years ago, back when people started using Blogspot and Blogger, just before WordPress kind of broke. And uh, I decided to start one myself, and um, it was called Cinerama. I don't think it's around anymore. And through that, I started to just make connections with the editors of some other sites, and you know. I know you had uh, the editor of Joe Blow on. And yeah. There's this uh, bloody disgusting was one of the first sites, and and Screen Anarchy was formerly Twitch Film. Um, they were one of the first sort of at the forefront of of um, some of the genre sites that were starting online. Of course, Ain't It Cool and and uh, was the was the first big one. But um, so from just from doing my own thing, I was asked to join uh, Quiet Earth, uh, which was a smaller blog, but it was bigger than what I was doing, my own thing. So I, I boarded on that and I became the sort of um, assistant editor, if you will. And, you know, it wasn't my day job. And uh, the dream of writing about movies as a day job is, um, you know, one that is fading. <laughs> and I'm, you know, after doing it for like 13 years, um, you realize like there's not a, not a lot of money to go around when, when there's so many sites out there. but. Um, you know, I'm able to supplement my income a little bit by writing for all these sites, and I get to write about um, the the movies that I love, and and uh, you know, be a part of the scene that I've been a fan of for so long. You know, it's funny. Um, I remember when I first started blogging. I mean, I've got some uh, some emails with Brad Miska, who's um, one of the co-founders of Bloody Disgusting, from like ten years ago, where we're pretty salty with each other back and forth about um, arguing about you know who found the content first and we need to be linking each other and all this stuff and sort of getting in these little, little battles, um, across platforms. And it's funny that all these years later, you know, I'm a contributor to his site and we're sort of fast friends. And, um, same with Todd Brown who used to run Twitch and, uh, screen anarchy now. And we were sort of colleagues and cohorts, uh, all those years ago. And then, you know, it wasn't until later that I, you know, they, they, they asked me to come on board, you know, to help them out. Brad and Todd 
are also getting into uh, producing in a big way. So Todd Brown, who runs Screen Anarchy, produced the Raid films, and he works at XYZ now as well. And then Brad, of course, produced the the, the VHS um, series, uh, which I'm a huge fan of, and I'm just floored by those films. So you know, it's uh, it's just a circle that I kind of want to want to operate in, and um, you know, it's a circle that I just kind of love to be a part of, and. Um, I don't know about you, but when I leave a film, I just want to talk about the movie all night. And, you know, I see the faces of the people around me sort of losing interest. And, and so if you can, if you can surround yourself with others who, you know, kind of don't want the conversation to end and you can, then I think it's, you know, worth doing, even if you're not doing it as your day job, but I'm slowly moving towards more of my personal projects, um, than reporting on the film industry. So, and actually last year I made the decision to not review any more movies. So that was uh, kind of a big decision because I've been reviewing films for a long time. And I just thought to myself that it was disingenuous for me to be trying to make my own projects and crapping on other people for their hard labors. I think it's sort of like when you learn how the sausage is made, you, you appreciate, you know, even a, a quote, bad film is like a miracle. You know, they're so hard to get made. And, and uh, when they are made, there's, there's, there are so many compromises that are made from the screen to the page. I mean, some good. It's like some movies probably end up better than the screenplays, but you you just realize there's who am I to sort of pick apart these these pieces? Maybe I'll just focus on my own art. Very humble. Uh, <laughs> so, and then let's get back to Storyfix. So, we definitely want to hear about that. You want to tell us about what it is? And uh, I know you guys are publishing a mobile game this fall. Do so you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I'm really excited about uh, the game we're publishing. It's called The Pulse. And uh, it's an interactive fiction game. And we started the company specifically to produce these interactive fiction uh, or interactive narrative mobile games, um, which are becoming more and more popular um, and have been getting more popular over the last couple of years. Um, and for me, I really think, you know, after working in so many uh, mediums, like um, in prose and in screenwriting, and now in interactive fiction, I'm like, this feels like the future that everybody claimed was coming like i don't know if you heard the news it was like maybe six months ago but netflix was saying that they were going to look into producing like choose your own adventure right i do remember that yeah and um you know cinema's never really figured out how to do it and there's there's been these weird projects that have come out these video projects but they're they're happening under our nose in the apps uh sphere and so my brother-in-law who is much more tapped into the sort of gamer world he came to me and suggested hey you know you should write one of these interactive fiction games he told me all about them and he said you know let's start a company and because he uh is a developer he said like i'll be the developer and be the writer we'll sort of go from there since then we've added a couple other people but these games are really interesting because they're like novels right so i mean the pulse was over a hundred thousand words so it's uh, essentially the same length as a novel but you are able to um have the reader interact with the um, story in such a way that they're complicit in what's happening and they can you know have some say over the outcome of the story and over what happens to the characters and over you know who they side with to me it seems like you know it really is the future of you know multimedia in a weird way even though they're they're really stripped down simple games mostly text-based some graphics but mo- mostly text-based games which i'm happy to talk a little bit more about 
Right. It's interesting. It's almost like a democratic story in a way. You're giving, you're empowering the viewer to kind of tell their own story. When you approach telling these stories, the first thing I'm thinking from a logistics standpoint is you start at point A, you have an option. Do you go down the door number one or door number two? And then from there, I'm assuming there's a tree of options that you're building the story off of, correct? Or, or how do you, yeah. is, is that how you write these out or? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So you can, uh, so it's branching narratives, if you, right. if you will. And so the challenge with these branching narratives is that each choice can't, I mean, you would have to be the biggest company with the most resources imaginable and the, mo- the most time in your hands to make every single right. choice branch to its own robust, completely new narrative. So the biggest challenge for writing these games is to create real have real choices that impact things in the story and have a lot of choices like create the illusion of choices but if you can create the feeling of real choices and build in other variables that create uh real outcomes later in the story then i think people are satisfied so i'll give you an example so when people talk about interactive fiction they're generally you know the word interactive is a little bit fuzzy because aren't all games interactive, right? But when people talk about IF these days, which is interactive fiction, they're usually talking about like the choose your path, like you said, or the parser games, like the, um, when you type in a word, like pick it up. And then, you know, it's based on typing in commands. The popular games these days are more like, are more, like you said, like choose your path branching adventures. What's really interesting about interactive fiction, you could never do this with like a word document or, or with the old choose your own adventure books. You could never really do this was you can use writers that are available for free online now. One is called Twine, which is really popular. Interesting. And more than just choices, you can track other variables. So for example, in the pulse, if you, well, first of all, the pulse is, the story of the pulse is about a woman who wakes up in a strange motel on the outskirts of a town. It's dark. She doesn't know what's going on, why she's there. Um, there's all these things littered around the room that she's obviously left herself. And she finds this radio and she makes contact with you and you help her through, you know, this mystery. And there's a lot of people who play games who just want, for example, to burn through the story as fast as they can, right? They don't necessarily want to explore. They don't necessarily want to, you know, they just kind of see what they want to see what happens. Like, well, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And you can build in, like, if you're, if you rush the character too much or you're not empathetic to what she's going through, you can get the game can, can track that in such a way that it will impact her relationship with you down the line. So if you develop a good relationship with the player, Interesting. then there's, there's a different outcome later on in the game. If you don't have a good relationship with, with the character, um, because you're, you know, like I said, you're, you're short with her, or you're not making trustworthy choices, she might actually just leave you, and you might have to end up playing with a different character or something. And so to me, I thought, this is pretty incredible. And so we started the company just to basically experiment in this space. And so the Pulse comes out in October. And then next year, we're working on sort of a time looping game, you know, where, where it's a time-based, time travel, time loop thing, where you're sort of, you have to go through the same scenario and over and right. over again. Figure and out, do, yeah, do, do something do, to get out of the, the loop or... Exactly. Do okay. something to get out of the loop or do something to, like, I can't get into the specifics of what we're thinking, but right. do something to stop a bad incident from happening. You know, the concept is not necessarily totally unique. We've seen it before. Right. But, but what you can do with interactive fiction these days 
um, can make it something really special. And so, you know, I think I'm probably most excited about working in this space right now. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds incredibly refreshing as a writer. You're not limited to just, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and, and that's it. It's just endless possibilities. I'm just thinking as you write it, like, where do you draw the line? As you said, from all the decisions you can make to the point where you're just, it's just life. And, uh, you know, there's just infinite parallel universes. <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, some yeah. some players get some players get very frustrated with these kinds of games. They're very popular uh, in in some circles, but they can get frustrated if they feel like the choices are not real choices, right? And that the writers are cheating, and the game is actually on rails, and they're only presenting the illusion of choice. So you really have to be careful that you set up very real choices, but they can't necessarily all be so impactful to the story that you're going off in a hundred directions because you'll, a you'll, you'll never finish writing it. I mean, I'm just going forever and it would be like the equivalent of writing an entire saga of books for one game. So there are some, some tricks you can, can play, but you know, you really want people to be satisfied. So you have to take that into account. And one of the ways to do it is, you know, you said, do you want to go through door A or, or door B? Um, what you want to do is make, is try your best to make each choice hard to make. So um, instead of, do I want to go down the alley or do I want to go down the open street? You would say, I could go down the alley, but it's dark. So I, I won't be able to see as well. I could go down the street, but it's light. So I might be seen by the bad guys. All and right. so each choice becomes, there's like something negative and something positive about each choice. And that, I think, instills in the player um, a lot of like, analysis and you know, uh, sort of interest in creating a strategy for themselves as they go. So that, that's like one of the tricks, for sure. And are those options presented with those uh, results? Or is that, are you keeping the options simple, but is it up to them to think about the, the outcomes? Or, or is it kind of ever like, put out there for them? Well, I presented it. I presented that more overtly than it okay. would be in the game. The, the character would make, perhaps make reference to uh, this is the, you know, the faster route is this way, um, but I'm concerned about something. Or It's hard to say without a specific um, example in front of me, but yeah, it wouldn't be super overt. Like, I could go down there, but a monster might get me, and then the monster gets you. you know, it's more like planting the seeds of every decision has a positive and negative. And then in the case of the pulse, we actually wanted to build in um, a lot of morally gray choices. You know, one of the things that people love about Game of Thrones, for example, and we talked about this a lot when we were developing the game, was your favorite characters are often put in these moral quandaries where whether they do choice A or choice B, it's kind of, it's bad for someone. Right. It's either, it's either bad for them or it's bad for someone they love. You know, so they don't know who, like... If I do this, I go against my father's wishes. But if I do this, I go against my wife's wishes. Well, what? Like I'm I'm stuck in the middle of two choices that are terrible, and so they have to make this sort of moral case for why they would do something. You know, that's the sweet spot of where you want to be. From your perspective, what about this writing style specifically do you enjoy better than a traditional writing style? Because it actually allows you to write um, prose like a novel. It pushes. Unlike a traditional game where you have graphics and you have a character um, in the game that has facial expressions and you know you can and music and you can have a lot of a lot of the 
emotional work happening in all these different realms. With interactive fiction games, it is it pushes the prose right up to the front. So it's driven by words. So um, it is like writing a novel, and the words get to to sing, but the reader is also gets to play, read it like it's like they're playing a game. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, for a writer, it's exactly what they would want because you know there's you know this idea in video games generally that like the writing sometimes stumbles. I don't play a lot of like AAA studio games, but um, some of the writing in those games is great, and some of the writings in those writing in those games is kind of clunky and the dialogues this and it's because the writers are sort of hamstrung by what the game really is which is a first person shooter or you know a platformer or whatever it is right and so this kind of game is really all about the words and so for a writer it's like a dream come true um because so much of it rests on on that work as far as you know you got me excited about this this type of writing when is this coming out how do i check it out like where should i look out for this um well it's coming out in october uh so we had hoped to have we hope to have it out in the summer but right now we're just kind of dealing with google it's because we just started our first company we don't have a relationship with the google play store it takes like more weeks than we expected and we're still um doing the final testing on the game so it's all ready to go uh we're starting to build out the website i mean people can go to the pulsegame.com and they can find some some information about the game. It's a very a very sort of straightforward website at this point, but they can find some information on there about it. Um, if you wanted to learn more about interactive fiction games and sort of get a sense of what they're like, I'd recommend uh, a game called Lifeline, which was put up by Three Minute Games uh, quite a while ago. It's sort of like the, that movie The Martian. It's about uh, a character who's stranded on a, moon, a strange moon, and they contact you and they need your help through through their adventure. It was very popular. But I mean, in 2014, Time Magazine uh, called this game 80 Days. It was like their game of the year. And that's produced by a company called Inkle. Um, they make very beautiful text-based games. And 80 Days is a great game. So I mean, if you're curious about checking out these games, I would, I would definitely uh, try 80 Days or Lifeline. But um, definitely check out The Pulse in October. I'm assuming you're getting insights into how often people choose certain paths, etc., right? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. Um, You know, using technology like this, you're able to see the paths people take, um, I think. I mean, I'd have to look into it, actually. Um, My understanding is that you can get a sense from statistics of, like, how far people get in the game, what paths they take, um, the choices they make, and all that. Like, there's no personal information, I think, involved, but you can, you know, you can get statistics on YouTube. You can get them through Google Play as well. I would be really interested to use statistics like that to tweak how we develop future games um, because I think you can get a sense of where people are stumbling or where people are, you know, how people are responding to certain paths, let's say. And I'm going to present an option to you. Are you down for what we call a series of seemingly random questions or are you not down for a series of seemingly random questions? And let's see, if I take the path towards seemingly random questions, uh, I might look like a fool. But if I don't take the path to seemingly random questions, then I will look like a coward. Hmm, let's see. Um, I, will take, I will take on the challenge of seemingly random questions. <laughs> well said and well, uh, you really brought that full circle. So seemingly random question number one. In your Screen Anarchy bio, you're described as madly and hopelessly in love with the art of storytelling. 
tell us what kind of love affair that is. Is it a misconnection, uh, a honeymoon phase, or is it a rocky relationship? I have to say it's a honeymoon phase that has lasted forever. The fireworks have never stopped. Wow. That's crazy. I can't say that other writers that either we've talked to or that we know have the same uh, relationships. I think it's a little more on the on the rocky side, but I can't stop writing. Every time I, I see a film that blows my mind, I, I, I'm, I'm in awe of the work of the storytellers. It wow. just, the fireworks will not end, my friend. We need to uh, can your, your like, love and energy and excitement for films and stories and, and, and just sell it as a soda that people can <laughs> just crack open, you know? Maybe we could, maybe we could partner. Writer experience and Chris. Be too sugary. People will get diabetes too. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Your Twitter name is Chris, a Star Wars story. Is that a reference to the fact that there are just so many Star Wars stories? And are there too many Star Wars stories? Yeah, everybody gets a Star Wars story. You get a Star Wars story. You get a Star nice. Wars story. You get a Star Wars story. Although, <laughs> although now I don't know the hist- like the 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 future of those Star Wars stories looks grim. But we'll see. We'll see. It's true. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't get to Chris's Star Wars story just yet. So real quick, because I was texting about this yesterday, is Kenobi still happening? Or, well, the Kenobi project is really funny because uh, Lucasfilm has never officially announced that they're doing it. Uh, as far as I know, they they sort of have hinted that it's been in development, and it's mostly like uh, Ewan McGregor has said he's in, um, but it's the fan site typing it up, and and uh, I'm I I could be wrong. But I don't think so. I don't think Lucasfilm has ever come out and said, we're doing it. Um, they haven't hired a director. You know, like they hired Mangold to do the Boba Fett one, right? Or was that another? No, he was brought in or they were talking to him. But the interesting thing is, I think they should have done the Kenobi one first because that seems to be the one that everybody is, is most Actually hyped Actually wants to see, yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed uh, Solo, though. How about you? I did, too. Yeah. I did, too. I thought it was fun. Yeah. Next question if you could have dinner with any writer, living or dead, who would you choose? Stephen King. There it is. A very quick response. Uh, next question. What is something about your career or work that nobody knows? Oh, um, gosh. I'm so busy going around talking about myself. Everybody probably knows everything. Um, something that nobody knows. Yeah, this is my favorite question. <laughs> it's a stumper. Um. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, nobody knows this yet, but it'll come out one day. Um, I adapted, don't laugh because it's better than it sounds. I have adapted the Blue Lagoon into a science fiction epic. Wow. Nobody knows about that, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's coming out soon. Are you going to make called- me cut this after? No. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because this, this question can sometimes catch people at surprise. So then you tell me something and then, you know, I, I want you to give me something good that I can keep. So are you sure? Well- I'm trying to think if I've, uh, I'm trying to think if I've, um, uh, I, you know, I don't want somebody to hear it. And then they, some turns it into a major motion picture. And then you're like, court, what did you do? You used, well, just, you, tro- <laughs> you, you trolled no. me. No, I'll stick with that. It's something that I don't talk about very much. It was like a weird idea I had because the, uh, the blue lagoon is like a public domain. Novel. Oh, interesting. And so, um, in the vein of, uh, uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I was like, you know what, I'm going to uh, reimagine this as a sort of weird um, pulp science fiction epic about, um, uh, you know, two teens that crash land on an alien planet and, uh, you know, have to live out their days, uh, you know, in, uh, in adventure. 
And um, that's coming out soon. That's actually something we're probably going to publish in the next uh, couple of years. So. Cool. And then uh, the last question is, uh, just using the choose your own adventure option, if you had two movie theater doors in front of you, and the first one was you have to watch all three prequels, Star Wars prequels, uh, on repeat, that's, that's door one. And then door two is you have to watch The Last Jedi uh, on repeat. Which one would you choose? A Last Jedi question, really? Now, it's a hot topic. I am going to choose door number one to watch the prequels endlessly. It's not because I hate The Last Jedi. I just, there's three movies there. There's a lot of imagination. I'm, I'm not as much of a hater on the prequels um, as some people are. Um, so I'll take door number one. I just recently watched The Last Jedi again on Netflix. And to me, it didn't quite hold up. Um, as much as I enjoyed it in theater, so I'm going to go with Dorna Boy. And I will take the slings and arrows, Star Wars fans. Wow. Yeah, I, I think there is a resurgence of, of um, or reappreciation of the prequels now that this Last Jedi thing has happened. So um, I think maybe there'll be less haters uh, on that answer than you think. <laughs> please, um, please, please don't let me in with all the people who are upset with Last Jedi. I saw it in a the theater. I really liked it. I thought it was a <laughs> movie. I really did. But in retrospect, there are things about the film that kind of bother me. And there's just as many things about the prequels that bother me. So believe me, it's uh, almost even Steven on, on those things for me. Well, thank you for, for going on that journey uh, with us. And uh, I guess lastly, do you want to just plug your... I guess I already did plug... I plugged your Twitter name. Do you want to plug your Twitter handle? Oh, um, my Twitter handle... People can find me on Twitter at Chris D. Webster. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be on Twitter a little less than I used to be because it's uh, getting pretty hairy out there. But um, I'm definitely, that's the best place for, to engage with me or to contact me or, but um, yeah, Chris D. Webster. And uh, I guess that's it for now. Like I said, let's uh, have you back on with the choose your, I, I keep calling it a choose your own adventure, but I, what is, what is the correct term you would call it? Yeah. You know what? People call them choose your own adventure games. Um, I think the going term is interactive fiction okay. games, text-based interactive fiction games. It's kind of a mouthful, but IF, yeah, that's what people call it. And you know what? I have to say, um, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Um, Thanks, there's man. not a lot of podcasters out there willing to sit down with, with writers. And um, you know, I've been listening ever since you guys started, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, man. So I, I would gladly come back. Really, really appreciate that. As you probably know, we just started about a couple months ago. Really excited about the guests we've been having and, and the insights we're getting, and, and it's been a lot of fun. And uh, we're trying to make it even more fun. So thank you again for taking the time. I think we just connected through either an email or, or Twitter or whatever. So it's really beautiful to kind of see this come together. And with that being said, thank you, Chris. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again. Have a good one. You too. And uh, for those listening, thank you again. And we hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.